0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org.
1: So I'm supposed to be talking about the cardinal virtues tonight. Um, And I could talk about this for an entire semester. It's just an incredibly rich topic uh, that I love talking about. So I'm only going to give a very condensed version of very rich material, I don't know how many people have looked at the Summa Teologiae, but um, the chunk on the cardinal virtues is like four separate treatises. Uh, It's enormous, um, and it's wonderful, and I love it. Um, But I'm just going to give like a super fast version, and um, then I want to leave a lot of time for questions. So please feel free to ask any question at the end of this talk. No question is a bad question. But before I talk about the cardinal virtues, I want to just situate Thomas's account of virtues in a much wider context of the basic account of his moral theology. Um, And Thomas's account here uh, really follows to a significant extent um, that of classical philosophy. So it's, it's the basic framework that you also find in Plato and Aristotle. But for Thomas Aquinas, talk about the virtues really only gets any traction or makes any sense in a much larger context of talk about the point or purpose of human life more generally. Now, Aquinas puts this in terms of ends or goals. Um, So he begins his discussion of the moral life with sort of a a bold but important claim. And that bold and important claim is that the goal of the moral life, or what is the same thing, the goal of human life is happiness, right? So so that's kind of the main claim. The goal of the moral life is happiness, where happiness is understood as something like complete human fulfillment. Now, according to Aquinas, um, there's sort of a a basic framework of what I will keep calling ethical naturalism. but he, he sort of works with an analogy between human persons as living things and all other living things. So the analogy goes like this, just as each acorn is potentially, potentially a mature flourishing oak tree, even though most acorns, the vast majority of acorns don't develop into oak trees, right, um, It's potentially a mature flourishing oak tree. And that is its natural and goal. Um, So, also, each human person is potentially happy. And that is our natural end and goal. It's not chosen, it is given to us. Now, a corollary of this uh, broader point is his definition of virtue. So, virtues are excellent dispositions of the soul, necessary in order for human beings to live well or be happy or to flourish as the kind of thing that they are so again using the same analogy just as oaks need to develop strong roots in order to reach their mature stage of flourishing so also we need the virtues in order to be happy right so it's the the modal force of that practical necessity is something like uh you won't get the good that you want without this necessary means um and like i said this is sort of the classical view Right, you'll, you'll find Aristotle saying the exact same thing. Okay, so Aquinas' claim that the goal of the moral life is happiness um, is shared by many thinkers in the classical tradition. Um, Saint Augustine famously um, was asked this question uh, by a young person, what should I ask of God? And he answered three simple words, ora, beetam pitam, ask for a happy life. That's what you should ask for. So we have this essential basic human desire for happiness. We cannot cease to want to be happy without ceasing to be human. It's kind of the primordial drive of human choice and action. Uh, All of our reasons for acting kind of bottom out in this natural desire to be happy. And we are incomplete and we are dissatisfied insofar as we fall short of this goal. Now, this is probably not how you think about the moral life. Probably you think of the moral life in terms of duties, or demands, or imperatives, or obligations, or commands. Probably you think about what is permitted or what is forbidden. You probably think that happiness or fulfillment of the heart's desires has to always take a back seat to something else, let's call that other thing morality, such that if you find that your moral duties make happiness impossible for you, say like, I don't know you're living under the boot of a wicked tyrant um, that makes you choose between um, doing what is dutiful and um, and living well then of course you would just have to do what's dutiful and so much the worse for living well um, and on that view right yeah it's great to be happy that sounds nice but it's just far more important to be moral and the two don't Like the two don't align except by a fortuitous uh, miracle or something. There's no necessary alignment there. Um, And you might even think this is like a really good description of Christian morality, right? Um, That this is the case. Now this view, I just call an ethics of obligation rather than an ethics of virtue Kind of an ethics of obligation and law rather than an ethics of virtue and happiness and um i will just tell you that modern moral philosophy uh sort of moral theorizing uh post medieval uh, philosophy until now um and most contemporary secular moralists uh, overwhelmingly put forward an ethics of obligation like that is the dominant view Um, So nobody, there aren't very many people today who think that morality has anything to do with happiness. Um, And there also aren't that many people uh, in moral theory today that take virtue very seriously. Um, And I think those two things are very closely related to one another. So the sidelining of virtue and the sidelining of happiness are related phenomena. And I think part of the problem here, it's only part of the problem, but part of the problem is terminological. So, in common English usage, happiness is like not a serious word, right? Um, no, nobody takes happiness seriously. Um, so, etymologically, happiness relates more closely to ideas of good fortune or good luck, like the German word, hap, literally means luck. But generally, we tend to think of happy people as like people who are cheerful, people who are in a good mood, people who just like aren't sad. Um, or burdened, or world-weary, or something like that. That's not what Aquinas meant by happiness. Um, And I don't wanna go too deep in the weeds about what Aquinas means by happiness, that would be another talk. But one thing that I do wanna clarify is that when Aquinas is talking about happiness, he's simultaneously talking about something subjective and objective. It has a subjective and an objective component. So it's, it's something subjective because um, it has a robust subjective component to it. Um, you know, there's something that it's like to be happy. It's a certain kind of experience um, that would be salient from a first-person experiential point of view. Um, but there is an objective component to it as well that I think is is prior uh, or, or at least more important. Um, and that is the idea that the subjective feeling is grounded in the possession of an objective reality right so you're really happy when you have communion with what is really good so your feelings are tracking something real Um, and so for Aquinas um, the good life or the happy life is a kind of harmony between our subjectivity our first personally experienced beliefs desires passions and pleasures and what is in fact objectively good for us um, and that's because he just doesn't think that we can talk about happiness or flourishing unless we're talking about possession of what's really good, especially for Aquinas, the good of loving and just relationships with other people. Um, okay, so the Greeks, people like Plato and Aristotle, they refer to happiness as eudaimonia. I don't know, if, how many people have like T- read any Greek philosophy, like Plato, Aristotle. Okay, a couple of you. Um, you should all take a. You should all take an ancient philosophy class. Um, right. This this idea of eudaimonia. It's not about being in a state, right? Um, eudaimonia is about living and being in a certain way, um, and it's certainly not just about being in a certain condition or, or having a certain feeling. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a way of living, right? So Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics even goes so far as to say, we well, won't really know if someone's happy until they're dead. Um, because, right, you have to look at their whole life. Um, I think there's something to that. But anyway, um, it's very important to Aquinas that you couldn't possibly take a pill that could make you happy, right? Um, And that you couldn't like plug yourself into some kind of virtual reality simulation and be happy. And the reason why that's not possible is because happiness um, transcends the subjective. If we just had a subjective conception of happiness, then you could take a pill, right? And just, you could manipulate yourself into being happy. Uh, But because it has to do with contact with reality, you can't do that. Um, So Aquinas has a very deep and not a shallow view of happiness. Um, in fact, it is for Aquinas, when he talks about happiness, he's talking about the highest good, right? The summum bonum, right? Uh, so, so, so the, it's, it's when you possess, um, that which completes you or fulfills you or something like that. Um, so the idea of a highest good is the idea of that which can most perfectly satisfy you given the kind of thing that you are. Um, So what sort of thing is the human person? Well, Aquinas, again, follows um, classical philosophy in saying that the human person is a rational animal, that it's something oriented by way of reason towards knowing what is true about the way things really are and oriented by way of desire towards possessing the good, right, which means you have intellect and will Um, work. You know, you can you can also talk about reason, uh, reason being a certain capacity of intellect. But given that you have intellect and will, which are capacities to seek the universal truth and the universal good, Aquinas recognizes, and here he's really following Saint Augustine, that we're never going to be satisfied. We're never going to be completely satisfied until we possess the complete truth and the complete good. Like. You're never, you're never really going to exhaust that. Um, and of course, from a Christian perspective, um, we can say that you're never going to be perfectly happy in this life um, because you're never going to perfectly possess truth and goodness in this life. Um, sometimes Aquinas talks about the human good as the good of reason. Um, and, and I think that's correct. And that just tracks the fact that intellect and will are Rational capacities. So when we talk about the goods that perfect and complete those Capacities we'll be talking about the good of reason Okay, so now we can talk about virtue in a more serious systematic way So the classical tradition teaches that virtues are habits Or dispositions that perfect our natural human powers of thought action feeling and desire such that those powers reliably act In accordance with principles of right practical reason why in order to live well or be happy which again is our natural desire and goal and because we are self-determined or free in our choices and in our actions so we're self-determined and free at any given point um, in our lives and we have to make choices about what to do Aquinas thinks it's obvious that we need to cultivate good habits so that we are always ready to do that which will um, which will be good, um, rather than that which will be bad or ruinous or take us off the path of happiness. Um, another thing about virtue is that it has to be done from knowledge. So there's like a knowledge requirement on virtue. So you have to know that in doing whatever you're doing, um, that you're acting well right? You couldn't like accidentally be just. <laughs> you have to, I mean, you could, right? But it wouldn't be real justice. You have to know that you're doing the just thing. You have to know that you're doing the honest thing. You have to know that you're doing the courageous thing. And you have to have an understanding of the goods at stake in doing that. Um, so there's this knowledge condition. Um, and he also says, you have to perform these actions, these virtuous actions for their own sake, rather than for the sake of something else. So if you um, do the just thing, you know, you return uh, money to your friend, but not because it's owed to your friend, um, but because like, I don't know, you've got this, like like you're trying to butter up your friend because you need something from him or something, right? So you did something that is materially just, right? Um, You did in fact give your friend what was owed to him, um, but you didn't do it for the right reason. And so it's like actually not really (laughs) a just action um, because it's not formally just. You didn't have the right intention in doing it. Um, And then the final condition, and this is like really important, you have to do it with ease and pleasure. It has to be easy for you. Um, so Aquinas, and I'll talk more about this later in the talk, but it's very important for Aquinas that, um, if you're really virtuous, it's not hard. It's not hard. It's like second nature to you. Like you give people, if you're just, you do the just thing. It's not hard, except maybe in like very extreme weird circumstances. Um, yeah. So, so with ease and pleasure. Okay. So virtues are habits. And that means that metaphysically speaking, they're a kind of quality or a kind of disposition. And when you think about habit, you're thinking about the development of one of the human capacities for action. Um, so, So habits are sort of like an orientation towards action that is defined by the characteristic kinds of act that the virtue tends to generate. So there's no thinking about virtue for St. Thomas, an abstraction from its subject. Now, subject for Thomas here is like a technical term. It picks out some specific power or capacity of the human person, right? Whose act it disposes well or ill, right? Virtues dispose your capacities well, and vices dispose them poorly um so when you think about virtue you're thinking about a certain perfection of a power um that is productive of good works so uh i have written four such powers on the board and i'm going to talk about them in a minute Um, but that's what he means when he i guess i should write that up here so these are subject uh, subjects of virtue okay So I've been speaking about virtue very generally and formally, but now I want to talk specifically and concretely about the cardinal virtues and the theological virtues, um, and also a distinction between intellectual and moral virtue. Um, So just really quick, intellectual virtues, these are the virtues that perfect our capacity to know things, and moral virtues are virtues that perfect our desires and our feelings what Aquinas calls the passions, right? So feelings like hope, feelings like fear, um, feelings like anger, right? Um, And he just thinks these are two different kinds of virtues um, and that's really important to him because he thinks that the way that you get these virtues is different. So intellectual virtues you get through teaching, right? Um, So if things are going well here at William & Mary, you should be cultivating some intellectual virtues. Um, But you're not cultivating moral virtues when you study, uh, sadly. Um, Moral virtues do not come through teaching. Moral virtues come through habituation, and that's a different process. Um, So there's that distinction between intellectual and moral virtue. Um, And then Aquinas kind of adds to this a Christian distinction between acquired virtue and infused virtue. Is that a familiar distinction to people here? So acquired virtue um, are those virtues, like the cardinal virtues that you can acquire just like through your own efforts, right? Um, Well, not just your own efforts, like other people have to help you in community, but like you don't need God (laughs) for, acquired virtue but you do need God for infused virtue right and the infused virtues or uh right the theological virtues those are all infused what are they there are three of them what are they faith yes right faith hope love praise faith is love um, I'm not gonna talk about these but Uh, They're wonderful. It's just not the topic of my talk. Um, So they're infused because they depend upon God's grace and our cooperation with God's grace, which enables us to participate in God's eternal life through the beatific vision. Beatific vision when we come to see God in his essence and love him perfectly. So the thing about the theological virtues is they orient you to perfect happiness, which is to say... God, right? These are the virtues that lead you to possess God, which is your perfect happiness, right? Um, And you have to have grace Um, because this perfect happiness, you can't attain through your own efforts. Um, You can't work really hard to have faith, hope, and love. Um, They depend on God's gratuitous grace. Um, Okay, so that's that's all that I'm going to say about the theological virtues, and for the rest of this talk i'm just going to stick to the cardinal virtues right so these are acquired infused acquired um okay Aquinas speaks of the cardinal virtues in two distinctive ways uh this is a little bit confusing um so if anybody's still confused at the end of the talk i'm happy to clarify so the first way that Aquinas speaks of the cardinal virtues is as specific virtues each having a determinant subject, a human capacity, and a matter, a distinctive sphere of human life, right? There, so the matter is like that sphere of human life over which the um, virtue operates and makes, makes good. Um, so, that, so that's the first sense. The second sense is as general modes or aspects of the concept of virtue generally. So there's a specific sense of cardinal virtue and a very general sense of cardinal virtue. Each cardinal virtue is necessary in human life because each perfects a human capacity over which we can exercise rational control, thereby perfecting a generic sphere of human life. There are four cardinal virtues, and that is not a random number. Um, There are four cardinal virtues because there are four... Principal capacities of the soul that need to be corrected and perfected by that virtue. Right. So we have practical intellect. Right. What? What virtue? What virtue perfects the practical intellect? Prudencia. Yeah. Prudence. Yes. You didn't know you were going to be tested. to Will anybody know? Yes. If you get this, I'll be super impressed. The irascible appetite. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, fortitude. Easy on Thomas and And the accusable. Temperance, yes. There we go. Four cardinal virtues because four principal powers of the soul. Um, now these four cardinal virtues and this is like super important to Aquinas and I also just think super important generally because it's true they do not operate on their own they do not operate on their own so this is sometimes called the unity of the virtues thesis uh, you can't you can't you can't just like be a specialist in the moral life, right? So it's like, well, I have courage, but you know, I can't, I can't make any good practical judgments. No, it does not work that way. If you can't make good practical judgments, you therefore do not have courage. Um, so they can't do this independently of each other. All moral virtues require prudence, right? So these are all, uh, these are all moral virtues, by the way, and of course, that's an intellectual virtue. Um, so, so all moral virtues require prudence to determine the mean and the circumstances, but prudence cannot determine the mean and the circumstances without moral virtue. This is called the inseparability thesis. This was articulated by Aristotle in book six of the Nicomachean Ethics, um, and basically what Aristotle says when he talks about phrenesis, which is the Greek word for prudentia, prudence, He says, good judgment isn't enough in the ethical life. You have to have perfected desire and perfected feeling. Um, And I hope, is my hope, that by the end of this talk, you see why that is the case. Uh, But for now, I'll just say it. Good judgment isn't enough. Um, Okay. So Aquinas follows tradition in taking the good of the human person as sought primarily through right practical reason. So prudence has a sort of special place here. Um, and I'll, I'll just sort of go through. Um, so I said that the human good is the good of reason. This is how St. Thomas speaks. The good of reason. And then he defines the cardinal virtues in relation to this. So here's what he says. Prudence secures the good of reason through right practical judgment right you have to be able to judge what the good of reason is in the circumstances so that so, so that's like that's like the first movement if you can't do that the rest of it is never going to come um, Justice affects or executes the good of reason in external actions that involve other persons right the stuff of you can't have justice by yourself justice always involves two persons in relation to one another. Um, fortitude protects the good of reason by holding firm to practical judgments in the face of difficult circumstances, especially threats to your life right if you're if, if you're afraid something's gonna kill you do you do you reason especially well? No right you're freaking out. <laughs> um, so fortitude protects, Right? Reason in those situations. It allows you in particular to hold firm to judgments of practical reason. Um, And temperance, he says, preserves it. Preserves it against what? Against bodily desires that cloud it, cloud your practical judgment, or render it ineffective in action. So, this is what he says. The entire structure of good works is built upon these four virtues. Right? So they're cardinal in the sense that um, like the doors of the good life hang on these four virtues in particular. Um, and again, why would that be the case? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. The moral life involves the excellent operation of the four principal powers of the human soul, acting together for the sake of a single end. What is that end? Happiness or living well. So that's the specific sense of cardinal virtue, but remember I said there's also like that general sense. So now I'm gonna talk about the general sense. Each cardinal virtue also highlights some aspect of the essence of virtue generally. So, okay, so prudence is the specific virtue, um, but the general aspect of virtue that prudence picks out um, is, being ordered to the final end. Right? So Thomas says the job of reason is to order things. Right? Um, So all virtues have to be directed or ordered to the final end. Right? All virtues actions have to be proportionate. Uh, They all have to be Firmly rooted, and they all have to be a matter of moderation. Um, So he says every virtuous action must be directed or ordered to its end by reason, be fittingly proportioned to something extrinsic to it as an end, be firmly rooted in relation to its subject and bear on fitting matter and circumstance such that the act is appropriately moderate. So do you see what he's doing there, right? Every aspect of virtue generally is highlighted by one of these uh, cardinal virtues. So um, it's through prudence that we knowingly direct our operations towards what is truly good. It's through justice that our actions are proportionally related to others. It's through fortitude that we become steadfast And it's through temperance that we are able to moderate our desires. Okay now there's another technical aspect to this um, which can be a little bit tricky but I think once you understand it it becomes sort of natural. So each cardinal virtue has integral subjective and potential parts so I will take those in turn. The integral parts of virtue are the subjective conditions necessary in order to cultivate and maintain that virtue. So I'll just, I'm just going to name one because I couldn't possibly go through them all. I'm, I'm just going to talk about temperance. Um, so the subjective conditions of temperance are two things according to Aquinas. One is what is translated as shamefacedness, um, and that is a sense of disgrace like you, like you feel a sense of shame or disgrace at intemperate acts. And the other is, it just it just doesn't have a good English translation. So the Latin word is honestos. Um Honesty would be the translation, but that's so confusing because it just doesn't pick out what we mean by honesty. For Aquinas, what it picks out is love for the beauty of temperance as a condition of the human person. It's a kind of like spiritual beauty. Um, so those are the integral parts of temperance, the subjective conditions necessary for the cultivation. Like, like if you don't feel shame, you're never going to become temperate. It's not possible for you. Um, and if you also don't have this love for the beauty of temperance, it's not going to be possible for you. So those are the integral parts. The subjective parts of a virtue are its species, right? So there are species of temperance in Aquinas um because temperance regulates what's the matter of temperance. It's the pleasures of the touch, where touch is very capaciously understood. Um, so the pleasures of touch are divided into food and drink on the one side and sex on the other. right? Those are when we talk about the concupiscible power, we're talking about our sensual bodily appetites for food and drink on the one side and sex on the other. Um, Now, regarding the pleasures of food, Aquinas discusses abstemiousness fasting and the opposing vices of gluttony, Um, and with regard to pleasures of drink, Aquinas discusses sobriety and its opposing vice of drunkenness, and with regard to the pleasures of sex, Aquinas discusses chastity and the opposing vice of lust. So those are all species of temperance, right, very specific virtues that are all manifestations of this broader thing, temperance. Um, So one interesting thing that follows from that is like, you also can't be a specialist in temperance, right? So like, we wouldn't say that you're temperate just because you have chastity, but like you're a glutton. Um, Maybe you know somebody like that, right? But you wouldn't say that they have temperance for Aquinas. Okay, so those are the subjective parts, now the potential parts. Um, This is a little bit tricky for people, but I actually really love this. I love this aspect of the cardinal virtues for Aquinas. Um, So the potential parts of temperance are basically other virtues and vices that Thomas thinks um, really hinge on moderation. So in the treatise on temperance, and this is the case for almost all of the cardinal virtues, there will be, right, the, um, the subjective conditions that are necessary for the maintenance of the virtues, and then there'll be all the species of that virtue. Um, so, like, so like in courage, you know, there's like military courage, but then there are other kinds of courage. Um, and, but then there are the potential parts. And um, this ends up like placing under justice all kinds of things that you wouldn't necessarily think would go there. Um, So, in the treatise on justice and the potential parts of justice, you'll find the virtue of religion, you'll find gratitude, you'll find all kinds of stuff, you're like, what does that have to do with justice? Well, all of these things, it turns out, involve giving to others what is owed to them. And that's why they're potential parts of justice. And similarly, the potential parts of temperance, Aquinas mentions continence, which means self-control, well, self-control in an ethical sense, (laughs) not a physical sense, Uh, kindness, meekness, humility, something he calls studiositas, modesty, and then the opposing vices of anger, cruelty, pride, curiositas, and immodesty. Those are all under temperance for Aquinas because they all essentially involve the moderation of some appetite, right? So under all of the cardinal virtues, you will find all the other virtues, like he maps them onto one another in this way. Um, and it's really clever and brilliant and systematic. But what unites all the members on the list is the special way in which each item relates to the moderation of desire as necessary for the good in question, and how lack of moderation is the cause of some specific evil or harm. Okay, does that make sense? Are we all still? We're good. Okay. All right. So. Each cardinal virtue has a proper subject and matter. The subject of a virtue is the capacity or ability it disposes towards its excellent operation, while the matter, again, is whatever aspect of human life can be rectified by right reason through the exercise of that virtue. I want to talk a little bit more about what I call the inseparability thesis. So this idea that prudence depends on moral virtue and vice versa. Um, So prudence disposes us to calculate the means to our ends well but having the right ends right so the matter of like what you're going after what you want that depends on having moral virtue Um, and this corresponds to the two elements of good practical deliberation as Thomas understands it there's intention for the end and that is secured by the moral virtues for Aquinas and then there is the correct determination of the means to that end. And that is the operation of prudence. Um, and really the entire account of the unity of the virtues comes out of the inseparability thesis. And I think though ultimately the inseparability thesis comes out of this account of the human soul, right? As consisting in four, principal powers that need to operate together. Okay, let me say something about justice. Justice perfects the will. What is the will? The will is the essentially rational appetite and the main principle of voluntary human actions. So when we talk about the will being essentially rational, what we're saying is that unlike lower appetites, bodily appetites, the will gets its object from acts of practical judgment. So the will desires what reason judges ought to be pursued in a situation. Um, And the proper matter of justice, again, is our external transactions with other persons, giving to one another what is owed, right? Um, Since a man is just insofar as he respects the rights of others. That's Thomas's definition of justice. So justice is a habit, A disposition of the will whereby a man renders to each one his due by a constant and perpetual will you have that constant and perpetual will when you're watching TV right you don't have to be like doing things with other people but if you have justice you have that constant and perpetual will justice is a moral virtue because it perfects an appetite all moral virtues perfect appetites Aquinas says, we are not said to be just through knowing something correctly. It's an interesting claim. Rather, Aquinas argues that we are just through our actions, through doing what is right. Although he never argues this way, it seems that Aquinas locates justice in the will because there is no distinctive or separately identifiable passion or feeling that characterize acts of giving other people what is owed to them like there's no specific passion that corresponds to that furthermore it is possible for someone to know what they owe to another person a debt say and yet not only not have a stable will to act in accordance with this knowledge but also to knowingly act contrary to the knowledge and not because of an intervening passion Aquinas calls such actions cases of willful wrongdoing or malice. Malice is willful wrongdoing. For example, a man can refuse to pay his debts because he prefers to use the money owed to purchase luxury goods for himself. And he can do this in full knowledge that he is totally obliged as a matter of justice to pay his debts and without being moved by any determinate passion one way or another. What then is the source of his error? For Aquinas, such a person is greedy and self-centered. He acts from a stable disposition to choose his private good over the common good. And this is a failure of specifically rational desire. It's a failure to want what is objectively of higher value. And we can do that, it's kind of amazing. You can choose a lesser good. You do it every single time you sin. (laughs) Uh, You knowingly choose a lesser good. But willful wrongdoing is not the only way you can fail to perform just actions. Right? So, malice isn't the only way to go there. One could commit perjury out of inordinate fear of death. The mob says you got to lie in court or they're going to kill you. Right? We've all seen The Godfather too. Or commit adultery out of inordinate sensual desire. Fortitude and temperance, then, are virtues that preserve reason through the rectification of lower appetites thereby allowing a person to cultivate a just will. So justice, Aquinas thinks, depends on fortitude and temperance. You won't be able to really be just if you don't have fortitude and temperance as well. You can't just have a good will. Aquinas argues that just actions are the effects Just actions are the effects of temperance and fortitude. Without them, it would be impossible to cultivate a stable and lasting disposition to give other people their due. So let me say something about fortitude and temperance. These are in the lower appetites rather than in the rational appetite. So I want you to grasp the difference there. So consider the immediate and strong aversion that you feel at the prospect of ingesting foul-smelling medicine. Right? So like NyQuil or something. It's completely disgusting. So compare that aversion, like when you smell it, you're like, oh, with the deliberate choice to take that medicine for the sake of preserving your health. So you hold your nose, you take the NyQuil. The former aversion to the medicine is a response to a sense particular, a foul odor, and like a kind of disgusting color. And that is the provenance of your sense appetites, right? Whereas the latter inclination, the inclination towards taking the medicine, that arises from a practical judgment that you ought to take this for the sake of, well, probably for the sake of sleeping, right? If it's NyQuil. And that belongs to the will. Do you see the difference between those two kinds of appetites? Um, So you can have this aversion to taking the medicine and still take the medicine because you have this other kind of appetite. Okay. So now i want to talk about these lower appetites. Aquinas divides the lower appetites into two different kinds, the concupiscible and the irascible. Fortitude protects the irascible appetite. What is the irascible appetite? It is the human capacity to experience aversion, right? So it's like going away from. Aversion from things perceived as difficulties or obstacles, chiefly dangers to your life. Temperance is located in the concupiscible appetite, which is our capacity to experience desire. So not aversion, right? Irraccible has to do with aversions. Concupiscible appetite has to do with desires going towards some sensibly perceived good, not rationally judged good, sensibly perceived good. Um, So desires and pleasures of touch, but also with the sorrows that arise from the absence of these pleasures when they are longed for. Right. So just think about, you know, you're walking past a bakery and you just like smell, you smell like some croissants baking and you're like, oh, you know, it smells so good. Um, And you have this immediate desire um, to consume whatever smells so good. Um, But do you go and eat a a croissant? I'm probably not. You're definitely not determined to do that just by smelling it. Um, But you have this kind of, um, I don't know, hankering or something for it. Okay, so fortitude for Aquinas is principally firmness of mind. That's what it is, it's firmness of mind. Because fear, most especially fear of death, creates a withdrawal of the mind from one's rational commitments when confronted with certain harms, right? Um, So you could be like, oh, if a dog is chasing me, um, I should not run because that will make it worse or like a bear, you know, they're always like if the bear comes, don't run What do most people do when a bear comes? They're just like, oh my god, and they run, right? Um, and fear does that, right? You can't hold firm to what you know you ought to do because there's like a big bear and it's very scary um, So in this way objects of fear tend to be opposed to what reason commands both because fear can distract the mind, thereby making what is reasonable more difficult to discern in the situation, but also difficult to carry out in action insofar as fear inclines one away from its objects, right? You wanna run away. Fortitude or firmness of mind is necessary so that you can preserve the good of reason and intention, judgment, choice, and action. Now, temperance goes the opposite way. Temperance deals with the contrary passionate inclination. It is the restraint or the curbing of desire towards an object of sensual pleasure, especially desire for the pleasures of touch, right? Aquinas thinks of these desires not as obstacles, but as instruments or aids that reason employs in order to attain its proper end of living well. Unlike fears, they're not necessarily opposed to reason unless they distract from what reason would otherwise direct our attention towards that is practically salient in some situation. Aquinas' view is that what we sensually want tends to direct our attention, which is why disordered desires often lead to acts of incontinence, right? Um, So it's not that, I mean, Aquinas thinks that sex and eating and drinking are good. Those are good things, right? It's not, they're not bad. Um, They only become bad when you are inordinately after them. Okay. So although each virtue is located in a specific human capacity, Aquinas acknowledges that one virtue can belong to several capacities so that while it is principally in one, it flows out to the others or helps in the interaction of one power being set in motion and receiving another. So while temperance is principally in the concupiscible power, it flows out into practical reason and will so that good judgment and choice is prompt and done with ease and pleasure. Likewise, although prudence is principally in the practical intellect, it flows out into the will and the passions, right? Now, I think what's very interesting and powerful about Aquinas on the cardinal virtues is it highlights the fact that they are excellences of human nature understood as like the whole person, which requires the development expression of all the agent's principal capacities so that they're able to operate in an integrated way, right? Um, So it's sort of like getting the whole person to act for the sake of a single end. Um, And so really you can see that the unity of the virtues is grounded in the unity of the human person, right? Um, And one thing that's really important to Aquinas as a result, and this is a huge difference between Aquinas and most modern and contemporary moral philosophers. Has anybody read Kant? Yeah. You read the groundwork? Yeah. So you know that Kant for Kant, it's all about the goodwill. It's the goodwill, the goodwill, the goodwill. Uh, as long as you have, you know, a maxim that's universalizable, you're good. Uh, this is not the case for St. Thomas. Good intentions and choices are important, but as we've seen, it turns out you can actually only have good intentions and choices if you also have moral virtue, right? Um, and um, this becomes really important when Aquinas is trying to talk about the difference between having virtue and just having self-control. Um, so when, let's, let's just talk about temperance because that's actually originally the context in which Aristotle draws this distinction. Um, so temperance we could think of as self-possession Right, so the temperate person um, wants the right amount of food and drink and sex um, in the right time for the right reason, in the right way. Um, And that is because the temperate person is in possession of himself in the sense that his basic human capacities are ordered to what is good through virtue. Now, let's consider the temperate person with someone who is merely self-controlled. So the self-controlled person um, knows that, um, well, let's just, let's just take the case of drink because this is a college campus. Um, so suppose you're at a party and you know, like you know your limit. Hopefully, you know your limit for drinking. If you don't, you should figure that out. Um, and like, you're having fun, like it's the end of finals, you know, and, uh, but you know, you shouldn't have that third drink. You know that if you have that third drink, your judgment's going to go and who knows what's going to happen. Um, but you want that third drink. So you are divided against yourself. You have a divided will, right? Because what you know and what you want don't align. Now the self-controlled person doesn't drink. He's like, I'm not gonna have that drink. But like, it stinks, because he really wants the drink. So he leaves the party kind of like, ugh. You know, uh, he's, he's, he's unsatisfied, right? He feels like he's missing something, because he's got this desire that's not being met. The virtuous person isn't like this. His desire and his uh, his wanting match align. Um, then there's a person in an even worse condition, and that is the the uncontrolled person. <laughs> So he knows uh, that he shouldn't have the third drink. He wants the third drink, and he has the third drink. <laughs> he just acts against his judgment, right? Uh, which is possible, right? You can do that, uh, but it's not malice, right? The the thing that explains why he takes the third drink is this this disordered appetite, right? He hasn't moderated his appetite for drink. Um, so, you, so these are three different character types. Oh, oh, and then there's a fourth one, right? And that would be the intemperate person. The intemperate person uh, wants the third drink, knowing full well that the third drink will uh, make his judgment terrible. He wants his judgment to be terrible, right? He likes getting drunk because he gets drunk and he loses control and, and that's like liberating and fun uh he's intemperate so he has the third drink and he thinks he's living well right so so let's let's go to the next morning the intemperate guy has a hangover doesn't really remember what happened uh but has no regret no regrets i regret nothing right um because he thinks yeah that's what it's like Uh, that's the price you pay for for partying Uh, but he thinks partying is good The uh, person who is not self-controlled regrets that he had that third drink, right? Um, Because he knows better. So he's in a better position than the vicious person, but he's still very far from virtue. The thing that I want to hone in on is the difference between the merely self-controlled guy and the temperate guy. Um, Self-control is not enough. They both do the right thing. And they both have knowledge that it was the right thing. But what does the self-controlled person lack? They didn't do it with ease and pleasure. They didn't do it from a settled state of character. And they didn't do it with ease and pleasure. So knowledge isn't enough. You have to have right appetite. And that means that not all virtues are virtues of the will. Virtue goes beyond good intentions and good choices. The self-controlled guy made a good choice, but it wasn't a virtuous choice. And there is a difference for St. Thomas. Uh, St. Thomas thinks that the exercise of any virtue must involve the will, because choice is an act of will. But not all virtues are dispositions of will. There is a difference for St. Thomas. Temperance is not a disposition of will. Fortitude, not a disposition of will. Prudence, not a disposition of will. Um, Okay, so what do I want to say by way of wrapping up? Because I think I should wrap it up at this point. Um, What I want to say is that for St. Thomas, um, the cardinal virtues, in a way, it really goes back to properly understanding the relationship between his account of virtue and his account of natural law. Has there been a TI talk here about natural law? Is that like familiar? Well, just like really quickly. um, Aquinas thinks that the natural law um, is just our ability to know uh, what is good for us through the right use of reason. um, And that all of us, Um, have this ability to figure out what is good for us through the use of our own reason uh, which god gave us and that in acting reasonably we are participating in god's eternal law just in fulfilling our own nature we are participating in god's providential order for creation Um, and so we are living well Um, that all is a matter of law and following following God's eternal law. But in order to do that, we have to cultivate virtue, right? Um, So there is a really tight connection between his understanding of natural law and his understanding of the importance of virtue and his account of happiness. Um, And I think that ultimately it's a really powerful picture because it shows that, you know, I started off with this contrast between obligation and command and virtue and happiness, but in the end for St. Thomas, uh, they're united in an important way. So I'll stop there and take some questions. Uh, yes, it's Benjamin, right? Yes. Yes, hi. So
0: uh the perfection of the desires that you talked about with them coming at ease, would you say that according to St. Thomas, uh that is primarily achieved by the practice of good works as in like a kind of like exercise in which one the practice or more primarily through prayer which one receives the perfection of desire through grace
1: yes well that's a whole can of worms um i'm gonna deflect a little bit on this one um because So, you know, there is that. So, I talked about the theological virtues as infused, and I talked about the cardinal virtues as acquired. But of course, what I didn't mention is that there are also infused moral virtues, right? So, there's infused temperance, there's infused fortitude, right? Um, And the reason that I want to punt a little bit is that. People who study St. Thomas like kind they, they like really get into big fights over this question like how grace and nature interact when it comes to specifically the cardinal virtues. Um, so if anybody listens to the Ti podcast, which you definitely should, there's a whole like symposium on this with Angela McKay, Knovel, and um, David Cosimo. I will just say that I take David's side and Father Michael Sherwin's side in this debate, but I feel a little bit, like, out of my element because I don't do moral theology. Um, so, so look, I mean, to, to answer your question, um, yeah, like, prayer is more important. Always. <laughs> it's just the simple answer. But... Um, but Aquinas thinks, according to me, and some other far more important Thomas, um, Aquinas does believe in natural virtue or acquired virtue or pagan virtue. Um, but that's a disputed claim. Oh, I will just acknowledge that that's a disputed claim. But I would I would go to bat for that. Yeah. So I just as a bit of practical advice. You should always pray for God's help.
0: <laughs>
1: Even at the natural level, you always need help.
0: I have a question about the natural law that you mentioned at the end. Yeah. So,
1: yeah, I just kind of carried that <laughs> 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 And natural law.
0: <laughs> um, so, um, you talked about Thomas St. Thomas' emphasis on natural law. Yes. So what would be the Torah's perspective on implementing natural law in a society that's focused on positive law?
1: Oh um well i suppose that might take many forms um what can you get slightly more specific on like which era are we talking about legal scholarship are we talking about like civil disobedience what mm, the legal scholarship. oh wow okay um well so the idea of a natural law is the idea that um what what is demanded of us um, on, on a on a general level um, can be known by everyone. Um, so, like, so for example, you didn't need God to tell Moses that murder is wrong. You could have figured that out. Now, the people were struggling, so God told Moses, and he's like take these commandments down and just let people know that I'm saying this, Um, but but prior to that happening, right, uh, God punished people for murder, right? Which sort of connotes that they they could have and should have known, right? Um, Now, imagine that you live in a society where murdering certain people is legal. Um, And, but you know that it's wrong, right? So the law is not tracking objective moral reality. Um, And what St. Thomas says is an unjust law is not a law. It's not a proper law. It's like a fake law. It's an ersatz law. And in that case, I mean, you should work to overthrow unjust laws, um, you know, but you also don't have to obey them. This is something that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. talks about in this letter from the Birmingham Jail. It was his defense of civil disobedience. Um, Now in terms of legal scholarship, um, it just means that you're not a legal positivist, right? So the legal positivist thinks, I mean it means other things too, it means other things too, but it definitely means that, right? So your account of the nature of law and what explains its normative force and power um, it won't be the account that the legal positivists get. Um, it will be a more substantive, robust account about what is objectively good for human beings and human societies. Yeah. Okay. Yes i'm wondering if you can comment
2: on the relationship between freedom and happiness yes um, some of my non-christian friends yes. will say or imply yes. um, that if, I, if they were christian especially if they were catholic the things that the church asks mm-hmm. the following commandments the counsels to agree pursuing the virtues mm-hmm. makes them less free because they can't do whatever they want so then yes. they're less happy yes um, but i think maybe it's like a word issue, like license and pleasure versus freedom and happiness, which is what we're talking about, the true freedom and true happiness, and maybe yeah. they are talking about unlimited license and unlimited pleasure. Yeah. And so maybe it's just a word issue, but I'm wondering if you
3: can all of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a word issue, but the word issue reflects a um, knowledge issue, right? Or, or like a conceptual disagreement. So um, most people now think of freedom as freedom from constraints, right? So you're really free when, you know, you're, you're, your autonomous, self-expressive will um, is free from oppressive constraints. And what your friends will say is that the church's teachings on, for example, sex are oppressive constraints, right? They're like... They're like chains, like holding them back. Um, But what the church teaches um, about freedom is that freedom isn't freedom from constraint, right? That freedom is your ability to attain what is good. Now, you might be constrained from attaining what is good, right? Someone um, Someone might have thrown you in jail unjustly, right? Now you are constrained. You are oppressed in that situation. Um, But what it means to liberate you is to break you out of jail so that you can pursue the good through virtue, right? That's real freedom. Um, The extent to which you um, have vice is the extent to which you're not free. St. Thomas compares vice to addiction. He also is like, Sometimes he has this like addiction metaphor, sometimes he has this illness metaphor, but like it's bad for you. It's holding you back, it's oppressing you. Why? Because it's preventing you from attaining the good. Right? And the extent to which you can't attain the good is the extent to which you are not free. Mm-hmm. In the relevant sense. So there is a disagreement about what freedom is. Mm-hmm. And we we just tend to have, I think, a very shallow conception of freedom.
2: Yeah. yeah, I heard an analogy once that helped me, like, playing a soccer game, if every player was free to do whatever they wanted to do, right. no one mm-hmm. would be free to play
1: the soccer game how it should be played. Right, of course. They would all course. have a limited license, but they wouldn't be able to do
2: what, like, is intended because...
1: Well, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, when I first came to the University of South Carolina, you know universities pay these marketing firms like obscene amounts of money to like have a slogan. You know, it's like a branding thing. And our, our slogan was no limits. And I was just like, oh my God. You know, I was just like, you know, it's like barf emoji. I'm like, oh no. And I used to open all my ethics classes by saying, limits are good, actually. In fact, if you didn't have limits, it would be chaos and anarchy. Nasty, brutish, and short. Like, now let me explain all the limits on my syllabus, like all of which are good for you. But like, but like, only a psychopath, right, would say no limits, yeah. as our university does everywhere. Um, and yeah, so it's just, it just uh, I mean, but it really, um, I mean, like it's funny, but it's also like sad, you know, that this sounds good to people, no limits. It's like wait, think that through for one second. Mm-hmm. Just just take a hot minute and think <laughs> about what that means. And um, but nobody did. Yeah, nobody did. You can ask another question.
0: <laughs> so you talked about how the intellectual virtues, particularly prudence, is perfected through teaching. But of course, you know there are many people who probably were never taught anything that like has. Um, you know, perfected prudence much more than I have, and I've not taught many things. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so, so to what extent is is the, um, you know, if prudence is to be able to know the good. To what extent is that discover, you know, intuitively discoverable within oneself, not even through like just explicitly reasoning, but through the process of falling in love with prayer and just becoming, coming to intuitively know it rather than through teaching. Is that?
1: that's a great question um the answer is long and we can talk afterwards more about it but um have you ever heard of cinderesis no yeah cinderesis is the natural habit that is the root of prudence in saint thomas um he talks about cinderesis when he talks about the natural law um but it's basically your ability to see uh what is good and bad for you in in a very general sense uh, you have that capacity. Uh, that's why you have a conscience also. Um, and so that is, ultimately, an explanation of that is is going to be the answer to your question. But senderacist is complicated. Yeah, complicated. Sorry, I'm going to kind of punt on that one a little bit.
2: Yes? One more. Um, yes? You said that. For someone to be virtuous, it has to be done with ease and pleasure, right? Yes. And so that's something that needs to be habituated, as I said, right? Yes. And so we see like young people being able to do this. Young saints, for example. Um, But if I just heard that on the surface, I'd expect only older people to to do something virtuously because they would have more time way to do it? Yes. Um, so is there a way to, like, fast-track, fast-track, like, <laughs> becoming But I was just wondering, because some people
1: seem to be able to do it when they're very young. Yes, yeah, um, it's that's called, it's it's just called just God's grace. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's not, you know, Um I don't, I don't want to give you the idea that if you have really bad habits and you go home tonight and you pray for better habits, that that's just you know that's it. Um, it's probably not going to be that easy, but I think um, um, but I think it will be easier. And I don't know, you know, God. I mean, look, God's grace is gratuitous, right? So the fact that He seems to like really give it <laughs> to some people um, in in these. Uh, right i mean the saints are 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 people that um live a life of grace that seems out of touch to the reality of most of our lives right um but of course those are also people that are cooperating with god's grace on a very deep level um and have a very intimate relationship with god that perhaps maybe the rest of us don't um but look i mean if you if you want to grow in virtue, I mean, I think I said this already. But if you want to grow in virtue, the first thing you should do actually is pray for it. Um, but like, let's say you let's say, let's say your problem is temperance, right? Like maybe you're a glutton or something. Um, I'm not saying you are. I'm just saying maybe. Um, then you also need to get real, and you need to to. Um, develop self control. So one thing that Aquinas says is there's really no route to temperance except through self control. Right? Because because when you know you shouldn't have it but you want it and you don't you don't go for it, right? Then that act of denying yourself some pleasure that you want over time starts to habituate you in a different way. And it is true. So the so so he does talk about fasting for example and of course the church obliges you to fast and what happens when you become good at fasting is that it doesn't hurt as much and that's good right um it's good because in part what it means is that your body is recalibrating but there's something happening to your body right and that makes sense because these are lower appetites um And when you curb and restrain those desires, um, your bodily dispositions change, your metabolism changes, right? So it's not, again, it's not just about the good intentions of your heart and your right judgments. You gotta get yourself in shape, right? Precisely so that what is lower in you promptly obeys what is highest in you. And it is possible. It is possible. Um, and you should also pray for temperance. Yes, yes.
3: Uh, this is kind of a threefold question, but am I a virtuous person if I strive to be, like, to obtain virtues? And then the second part to this is, are only virtuous people those who are saints? And then the third part of that is, <laughs> um, sorry, the third part of that is, if you obtain these virtues, like retain these virtues as well, uh-huh. does that mean if, it's not that you don't, that you lack the ability to sin? Nor no, you can always sin. You can sin, right? So, but does it?
1: Is it like are these people extremely dis- sadly
3: disattracted
1: to sin. sin? Okay, so sorry, what was the first part again? Oh, so, am so, I a virtuous
3: person? If I strive to be, sadly, <laughs> no. Next.
1: Part.
3: Is a virtuous person only one who's on the
1: virtue and therefore like dead or a saint? A purpose person. Are only dead people virtuous? I've never had that um, of question before. It's a good question, actually. It's not. It's not a bad question. Um. No, I mean, so. Um. There are a lot of fine-grained distinctions that I would need to draw in order to really, um answer that question adequately like I haven't talked about heroic virtue for example uh, which would be like the virtue of the the martyrs for example Uh, interestingly Aquinas discusses martyrdom not in the treatise on faith but in the treatise on fortitude yes it's an act of fortitude Uh, which really surprised me when I first read Saint Thomas. I was like oh I thought that would be faith no and it's instructive that it's not Um, but yeah, I haven't talked about heroic virtue. I haven't, I mean, uh, it's a little bit more complicated than I've been able to go into. But your third part, can I still sin if I'm virtuous? Yes, sadly, you can always sin, um, which is why you should pray. But, um, what, what is going on? So, so here's what St. Thomas says, virtuous people can sin. How's that? That's kind of weird, right? Um, what he says is not that sin obliterates their virtue. It doesn't do that. Um, what he says is that um, they're not using their virtue. Like it's there, but they're not using it. Um, and he gives several different accounts of why this might come to be. Um, but, but that's ultimately his account. Now, um, I think certain things you could do would, would probably be significant enough to obliterate the virtue. Like, I think if you murdered somebody, we're we're gonna say you're not just. (laughs) Like, like that's pretty, that's pretty bad. Um, But maybe like that one time you, uh, I don't know, some minor infraction, um, where there was some grave circumstance, some grave mitigating circumstance, right? Then we're just gonna say, um, you didn't use the virtue, perhaps you're, just, I mean, it's a bit, it's understandable, something like that.
3: But like how can you, if to be a virtuous person is like, to like have a virtuous cup, like to, to do your job and do it well, right, mm-hmm. to the end, then if you're not doing your job well when you sin or like you're missing a mark, right, on idea, then, then are you truly virtuous?
1: Well, no, you're imperfectly virtuous, but you can be, you can be imperfectly but truly virtuous, right? Because otherwise, we're all in trouble, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Don't you know perfection can be the enemy of the good? Um, you should try to be perfect, but also have a healthy sense that you're not going to be, right? Humility. Um, yeah. Because if, because if you were convinced that you were fine, uh, one you would lack humility and so you wouldn't really be virtuous. But two, um, you would be very you would be, I think you would be in some some kind of grave spiritual danger. Actually, way too much self confidence, right? Because then why would you why would you why would you need grace at all? if you're perfect Um, I mean I didn't talk about original sin I didn't talk about the four wounds that inflict all of these Um, but you know that's that's part of it Um, we are wounded we are fallen the virtues correct that but they can't totally overcome it only God's grace can do that